Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1946 ceremony year win for Joan Crawford for Mildred Pierce. Um, uh, just before we get into the show, so Best Picture in 1946 was The Lost Weekend. Best Director went to Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. Best Supporting Actress went to Anne Revere for National Velvet. Best Supporting Actor went to James Dunn for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And Best Actor went to Ray Millen for The Lost Weekend. Um, today, I am joined by a friend. Uh, he is a comedian. He is a screenwriter. Um, he does describe captioning. Uh, for the visually impaired, so he's for sure going to heaven. It's Josh Murray. Hi, Josh. Hello. Thank you for the lovely intro. How are you, Kyle? I am good. I am excited because Joan Crawford winning an Oscar, historically speaking, is actually one of the greatest comeback stories of all time. Because she, throughout the 1930s, uh, first she was a, a silent star, and then in the 1930s she did a lot of bit parts, but then by 1937 she was labeled box office poison. She was eventually dropped by um, MGM, I think in like 1943, didn't know where her career was going. Then she signed to Warner Brothers and refused to work except for one cameo in the film Canteen, which is more for in support of the troops. And she spent that time not working... Uh, studying scripts and learning what made a good script. And and um, then, you know, along comes Mildred Pierce. And then she came back to film winning an Oscar. So it's kind of like a huge comeback story for her. So this is kind of a very fun year. But you picked this year. So why, why Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce? Why did you pick this year? I think I like the group of people and find them really interesting. And... Joan Crawford, it's weird. I feel like she has such an iconic face that mm. in my head, I, I really think that she's one of the canon like Oscar actresses, but it's really just one win and three nominations. So I kind of find it have an, an interesting career in terms of like how legendary she was in her time and mm. how many periods of her career were some kind of like dark thing that needed to come back or, or what have you. Because in my head, she's really got numbers up there with like Betty Davis and Elizabeth Taylor and like Meryl Streep kind of nominations, but uh, it's really not the case. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a movie that I think is super interesting. And uh, the one the other one I'd seen, Gene Tierney is also a movie I think is super interesting. And I think Ingrid Bergman's Oscar career is always interesting to talk about. So I just thought it was an interesting five because I hadn't seen the other three and I'm like, okay, where am I going to land on all this? Uh, sure. I mean, and I, I do agree with you. Every single one of these actresses has something to contribute sort of in their own uh, way because all of these women are movie stars and I have my opinions. Um, Jean Tierney, this is the first time that I had ever seen her, but, um, you know, when you're looking at like this list of nominees, Jean Tierney, Jennifer Jones, Ingrid Bergman, and um, Greer Garson, it's like, I think Joan 
Crawford and Gene Tierney were first time nominees here. But for the most part, you know, these are some familiar faces, Jennifer Jones, uh, Ingrid Bergman and, and Greer Garson. And uh, it's sort of interesting what got nominated, especially for this time period, because these films came out in 1945. The war had just ended. What When did the war end? September 3rd. 1945. So, or I think it was September 3rd. Anyway, it was in September of 1945. So, you know, the subject matter, I think, had to be light because of the hardships that um, the world was going through at this time. And I think that you can see a lot of that here. A lot of these movies this year, um, I wouldn't exactly call high stakes plots. And in terms of movies that were actually like movies that I would maybe, because I've, I've seen Mildred Pierce. I was actually really excited to watch the other um, films. And if I'm being honest with you, there was maybe only like one and a half other films in this um, group of nominees that I would maybe watch again or actually did enjoy as a film where I found maybe some of these performances were nominated because of their star power. But we'll get into that. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, talking about our nominees this year, I, uh, think we should just sort of jump in and, uh, I always say, you know, this is in no particular order, but the first person that I want to talk about is Jean Tierney and leave her to heaven. So very quickly for anybody who has not seen this movie, A writer falls in love with a young socialite and they're soon married, but her obsessive love for him threatens to be the undoing of them both as well as everyone around them. Uh, This movie is actually cited by director Martin Scorsese as one of his favorite films of all time. And he assessed Jean Tierney as one of the most underrated actresses of the golden era. So before I share my thoughts, uh, Josh, what did you think of this film and what did you think of Gene Tierney? Okay. So I had seen this one before and I had really enjoyed it. I love uh, melodrama and sort of technicolory stuff. And what I noticed is when I got into the movies of Douglas Sirk in like the fifties, you got like magnificent obsession and uh, written on the wind, all that heaven allows uh, they're mm-hmm. like the most beautiful red. Uh, it, it's basically what Far From Heaven is a pastiche of. It's it's like just like these glowing color movies about social, uh, someone looking down on someone else socially, and right. and all of the big emotions that come from it. And I noticed a lot of Doug Doug Sirk movies were remakes of John M. Stahl movies from the '30s. And I feel like this movie in 45 is like the halfway point. It's John M. Stahl himself kind of trying to do the uh, exaggerated parodic version of it uh, with more color. And uh, I just find that melodrama is like the most actress friendly genre in terms of like, I think it's the reason that Far From Heaven was made. It's like, we want to give you a thing that's literally all about you reacting to everything you could imagine. (laughs) Right. And it's kind of what Jean Tierney does here, but it's also so dark for a movie during the code. She is so nasty for a uh, central character, not necessarily the protagonist, but definitely the showcase starring role in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, getting big uh, scenery to play. 
and I just kind of find it a delight. Uh, one, another reason I was curious to choose this year was I considered this and Joan Crawford to be two of the stronger uh, nominated performances in general that I've seen. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to like watch those again as like a tiebreaker, basically, because I don't even know what I would do choosing this year. Interesting. I mean, you know, I found the actual cinematography because this movie is in color. That to me is something I've never seen before. It's very striking. I've never seen a movie from this era in the 1940s where, um, cause you know, it, it's always like the big shoulder pads and the, the suits with the white pocket square and the greased back hair. And, and it was very stylish. I love that kind of retro style. Like when I did my comedy special, I tried to emulate that era. I'm a huge fan of it, but you never really see those kinds of movies in color and the vibrancy um, of the color. It was for me, what made this movie so captivating like this, the story was, was interesting. Um, the acting is very, very interesting. Her character, um, Jean Tierney's character is very, very interesting. I'll be honest with you. Um, it took a really long time for me to understand what the movie was about because you're about an hour in and there's really not a lot of plot points here for me to want to keep watching other than just being so in awe of like the beautiful cinematography because I couldn't figure out, I'm like, is it that she's possessive of him? Is she going to um, kill somebody? Is she, and yes, all of those things are true. I just wish from like a screen uh, from like a script standpoint that we would have gotten there like a little bit sooner. But what I loved about Jean Tierney's performance in this film for anybody that doesn't know, um, she in this movie is basically <laughs> just comes off as totally normal, but then you're kind of like, oh, something's a little off here. And then she becomes so possessive of her husband who reminds her of her father gross. And ultimately like, one of what was it like her husband's brother had polio so he couldn't walk and then she basically like watches him drown because she wants the husband all for himself you're like what like there's she literally aborts a baby by purposely tripping down the stairs and making it seem like an accident because she because the baby would take attention away from her from the husband and so like it's it's a pretty crazy character and so when those big moments happened, they were definitely worth it. I just wish that we got there sooner. I understand that movie making back in the day, obviously was a lot slower and the pacing. Um, but my biggest criticism of this year was I just found that there, there weren't really like a lot of like high stakes plots. And so a lot of these movies were a little fluffy for me where this movie actually had some really big moments. Like the two, for example, that I just mentioned, I just wish that, we got there a little bit sooner because I'm sorry, after an hour, if I still have no idea where the movie is going, I'm losing, um, I, I'm losing I'm, I, attention and I'm, I, I don't really care about it that much. Um, but I will say that um, Jean Tierney's performance, she does a really good job at sort of portraying the character in a way where you don't really suspect something of her, but you still kind of do like, you're like, Hmm. What, what is it about you? And I think that that's very difficult to portray because you have to act like everything's fine, but like it's not. So I think that she communicated that very, very well in a very subtle way. And I think that that was very effective. 
Yeah, it was kind of fun to rewatch knowing that she's a nightmare monster because it kind of just became this uh, tension exercise. And I sort of started thinking of it as like an inside out or like backwards kind of whodunit mystery where you know exactly who is the person who's the problem. And the tension, the engine of like the first half of the movie is just you gradually figuring out what's what's going to be wrong with her exactly. How far is she willing to take this shit basically mm-hmm. and why does she seem to want to be thought of by him like literally 100 of his time is mm-hmm. offended by the idea that he likes anyone else in his family in any capacity even like her hypothetical child it uh is just giving so much into it i also find in terms of the slow or lower stakes plots i think the m- melodrama not only does this one have a little more life and death going on in it, but it it also just has the best excuse because it's deliberately like just people making something of nothing constantly. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I will say in defense, because whenever um, Danny, this is the the boy that, that couldn't walk and then she watches him drown, when, they, when he moves in and uh, the first morning, like the married couple you know, they're, they're in bed together and they're having a lovely morning together. And then Danny starts like banging on the door being like, good morning. Gee willikers. Can't wait to get the day started. I can hear you guys in your bedroom. Can you hear me? Oh, what a great start to a day. The birds are chirping. I'm like, yeah, drown Danny. Oh my God. Like what a fucking buzzkill this kid is. I, 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 there were some moments where I'm like, okay, he's actually kind of annoying. So for me, it came off as like a little comedic let's say or at least it was for me i also felt um that what was her sister's name was it ruth i played by yes yes gene uh, crane gene crane i thought they had absolutely no chemistry they were not sisters at all they were literally just two women that was like your sisters now like they didn't have anything in common they whenever they spoke to each other they spoke to each other like co-workers um i thought that they had terrible chemistry um for me like the the femme fatale, the interesting role, and the reason to watch this movie is really Jean Tierney. She she's the movie for me. She's the one that I'm most interested by. Um, also, uh, high fucking was Vincent Price was the was the lawyer. <laughs> I only yeah. think of Vincent Price as like a spooky man, and I didn't recognize him at all uh, in this yeah. film. Edwards in your hands, but it's like very, uh, slightly different voice, but, uh, slightly same, uh, energy. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, but I always, yeah, I always love an evil, an, an evil woman. My only criticism of the movie is I just wish that we got there faster. That's really all because it really is a very, um, like you're saying, it really comes down to, you know, Joan Crawford and, and Jean Tierney and maybe one other actress in this year because, um, the film's on their own this year aren't terribly strong, uh, but this is definitely a contender. Yeah. Um, what I, what I love about it, I think kind of like someone might lie in a job interview, this movie's uh, greatest weakness is its greatest strength. And it's the fact that like everything exists just for Gene Tierney to react to it, which for me is like what I want out of this movie. The kid is annoying so that she can be like Lucille Bluth or like, Kristen Wiig and just like make a face at anything. <laughs> and uh, Vincent, when she gets a lawyer who's going to be like uh, prodding around and asking questions, it's Vincent Price just because that's what makes the movie extra at that point. 
mm. is for uh, there to be like so much extra like barbecue sauce on every line delivery. A um, couple facts about this movie uh, for the proposal scene, because at one point, Gene uh, Tierney proposes to Colonel Wild, which obviously for the time uh, would be extremely uh, unorthodox for a woman to be proposing. Uh, the actor Colonel Wild, he had trouble reacting convincingly to Gene Tierney's advances um, because he's a white man of the, a straight white man of the 1940s. He's like, but I'm dumb man. And so uh, each time that they did a take, the crew was so uh, impressed. They whistled at her. Finally, John M. Stahl said to Wilde, they all seem to understand how the scene should be played. Why can't you? Uh, and uh, yeah, the title is taken from a line from William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, leave her to heaven. And I, one other thing that I also just thought was fucking hilarious about this movie is that she commits suicide and frames her sister for murder. That is arguably the most spiteful sister rivalry move I think I've ever, I could even possibly ever fathom or think of. And it to a point where um, Richard ends up going to jail because he knew about the, I guess you would call it, I I wouldn't call it murder, but let's say manslaughter of Danny on Gene Tierney's part. So he goes to jail for two years. So like in the end, Gene Tierney, kind of the villain, like wins. <laughs> so it's also another reason why I like really enjoyed this movie and I really loved her character and I enjoyed her performance. Like, oh, also my only other criticism was she gave up her evil plot too easily. Like whenever Richard just fully asks her, like, did you drown Danny? Like, did you let him drown? She kind of just, not actually, but the energy of the response was like, yeah. And like, that was kind of it. And I was like, you gave up your evil plan too easily. I was hoping for like a villainous, you know, it's like, oh, you've, you, you suspect me. Oh no. And like, I think there was, I wish there was more of a build up there, but there's things about this movie that I would change, but ultimately Gene Tierney is the reason to watch this movie. And I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. If, if uh, Danny and Richard and Ruth, they're all kind of, a sometimes annoying and b like barely have a personality in our characters so you kind of are forced to sympathize and watch from her perspective and it makes it more enjoyable like is this like the invention essentially of like asking people to just come and like watch an actress slay yeah right because <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know an earlier time it's fun to see though like i i know uh gene tierney i think mostly from like film noir and movies like laura Mm -hmm. And it's just funny that she's moved to melodrama, which is a different genre, but she's still basically a femme fatale because mm -hmm. it's not one of those normal melodramas where they're going to like kiss and like uh, sunset at the end. It's it's just something much darker where basically everyone else gets written out slowly. Yeah, well, 100%. Um, but I think that the invention of just watching some woman just slay while everybody else is kind of just acting their part, I feel like it would be Betty Davis that really invented that. <laughs> Yes. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. And and there even some of her 30s movies or early 40s movies have already started dabbling into that, like uh, now Voyager and stuff like that. Yeah. The Little Foxes, although actually I hated that movie. Um, OK, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Gene Tierney's performance before we move on? Uh, it was great. And if people want to see another crazy melodrama, I would recommend uh, Written on the Wind, which is the Best Supporting Actress winner. One of the few uh, older ones that's actually a, a great role for Dorothy Malone. 
Oh, I love that. Okay. Also, if anybody does want to watch uh, Leave Her to Heaven, it's on YouTube. So watch it before it gets pulled uh, off the off the YouTube. Okay, so let's talk about, oh God, okay, let's talk about Jennifer Jones in Love Letters. Um, Okay, so very quickly, Love Letters. Uh, Alan Quinton writes a fellow soldier's love letters, tragedy results. Later, Alan meets a beautiful um, woman with amnesia who fears the postman, then then they eventually fall in love. And then you find out that, uh, oh, Jennifer Jones because she had these love letters written by her husband and they weren't written by her husband. Her husband gets murdered and then Alan Quinton comes in and then falls in love with her. And then, Oh, she finds out that Alan was the one that was writing the letters all along. And then they re fall in love. This movie has got to be one of the stupidest movies I have ever seen in my entire life. So far to the point where I would actually say, first of all, this plot makes Absolutely no sense. Uh, like what? 60, 70, 80, 80 something year spoiler alert. The grandma, the adopted mother did it of Jennifer Jones's character. Um, her amnesia makes absolutely no It was like watching a horribly stupid parody of a soap opera. It made the plot. Okay. I'm also going to go so far to say that Jennifer Jones is the most overrated actress of her generation. She is stunning, and I will give her that. I have never... Okay, Duel in the Sun, uh, Love Letters, and I recently just watched Love is a Many Splendored Thing, which is just a hint, hint to what my next episode is going to be for Best Actress. And I'm telling you, it's always the same fucking performance. I haven't seen the one that she won um, her Oscar for where she's playing like a nun or whatever. We'll eventually do that episode. Maybe my opinion will change. But at the moment, based on those three films that I have seen, I think that Jennifer Jones is the most overrated actress uh, of her generation. I had, I think I watched this movie in like five parts. I had to keep pausing it and walking away because this is such a bad movie. Um, the, her performance makes no sense. Um, I, I don't understand her character's motivation for kind of anything. And the fact that she is nominated in this group makes zero sense to me. So those are my opening thoughts. <laughs> Harsh, but those, that's just how I feel. Anyway, Josh, what did, what did you think of this film and what did you think of Jennifer Jones? Mm, uh, yeah, I, I would agree that she seems, uh, overrated. Uh, although the only thing that makes me question that is, is she actually still high rated in any way? Because uh, I feel like she's got these five Oscar nominations. And this is sort of what I was saying at the start about Joan Crawford is like, Joan Crawford's like a name. She's also really a face and a voice that is, it really conjures something very specific in the memory. And Jennifer Jones is very much not that in terms of like listening to the acting. And I just feel like you see those five noms for her and the three noms for Joan Crawford. And you're like, Guess which one of these people uh, was married to a studio head after you uh, right. see them act a little bit. <laughs> she was married 100%. to David O'Salznick. And I feel like so many of the, not that the, even just getting to do the performances in the first place, like getting past the audition it is helped by those connections. Absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting in, in retrospect because yeah, they don't hold. I had seen the song of Bernadette, which I think is her win, but also yes. may have been her debut. Um, and 
she's better in that one, I think. I mean, that's an interesting movie, but it's a strange win. Another getting interrogated by Vincent Price movie, actually. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you'll enjoy that one, I he suppose. He was but... typecast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. First, he asked so many questions that they just had to give him like a gothic castle eventually and like, <laughs> host your own thing in here. You've earned this. <laughs> yeah, you, you're in a new era now. I love that. But yeah, this was a strange movie. I actually, uh, strangely enough, given the letter writing, I watched it right after... Uh, seeing The Lake House with Sandra Bullock for the first time. Oh my God. And that is a considerably better movie than Love Letters because <laughs> it's all those like basic uh, rom- romantic drama beats and has setups and payoffs and, and basic things like that. And this was uh, this was much stranger. I watched that movie, The Lake House, um, with uh, Daniel, actually not even, the, I've never seen it. And like, I think let's say a year ago, I watched it and I literally was like, what the hell... Sandra Bullock. Like, what is this movie? I it didn't make sense. I thought it was so. I hated it, and I, I love me some Sandra Bullock. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, didn't like that movie, and I really hated this one. I even wrote in my notes, she has top billing, but the first twenty minutes is just Alan. Okay, so I'm having a hard yeah. time following the plot. Um, okay, then her because Alan is the main character, and then his fiance Helen, they just break up their engagement in the most chill way. They're like, yeah, like. I don't want to be engaged. She's, and then the woman Helen's like totally, and that's it. Okay, cool. Where, where are the big plot points here? I don't understand. Um, then I wrote, dear God, where is this movie going? Losing my patient. This is the 45 minute mark. Um, and then, okay. She demonstrates that she has amnesia in a murder flashback with a knife in her hand covered in blood. And she nails it, letting the audience know that she has amnesia because she says the line, who are you? The fuck? Like, what the fuck? I was like, this is... Like, even soap operas are better, and they're ridiculous. This this movie was such a, a flop for me. Um, okay, 50 minutes in. She's been in three scenes for two minutes. Other than her stunning beauty, there is nothing memorable about this performance. Um, she said, I can't write, but I can read, but I've forgotten how to make letters. What? That also doesn't make any sense. Where is the amnesia coming from? I don't understand where the amnesia came from. Someone else murdered uh, her husband. And so she developed amnesia. Like, that's not how amnesia... Like, what are you talking about? Okay. Uh, This performance is melodramatic, bordering on camp. Actually, I would say that this is camp. Um... I feel like during this time, uh, there were movie stars and then there were actors. Jennifer Jones, to me, in this role specifically, is a movie star. Okay. Um, Let me think here. What else did I write? I really... Okay. They didn't care that the old... Oh, yeah. Remember whenever they revealed that the old lady murdered the husband? They didn't give a shit at all. They were way too chill about murder in the 40s. For example, whenever Leave Her to Heaven, whenever he was like, oh, did you murder Danny? She's like, totally. They're like, cool, let's go for brunch. Like it was nothing. I mean, ended up, what's his face ended up going to jail for two years. So I guess they did eventually like deal with it. But um, when the old lady murders the husband, they were just like, oh, all in a day. Another, Another thing with the writing and the plot. And I just, I have no idea... Anyway, I just, this movie was such a chore. This performance is camp bordering on just bad because look at like, 
uh, Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest. That's like the campiest camp to ever camp. And I fucking love it. So there's good camp and there's bad camp. In my opinion, this is bad camp because it's not trying to be camp. I mean, obviously neither was Mommy Dearest, but you know what I'm saying. The point is, is that anybody listening, this movie isn't even, it's it's one of, the, you know, when people are like, oh my God, it's so bad, it's good. No, <laughs> it's just bad. Don't watch this movie. I I cannot. Every time I see a Jennifer Jones vehicle, I'm like, oh, God. And it always lives up to my disappointed expectations. I don't watch it. That is my harsh critique. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, she's she's back on her bullshit as usual. Written by (laughs) Ayn Rand. uh, A truly, truly baffling plot by a truly baffling person. But um, very strange. You know, whenever there's a bad movie and you just hate it, it's there's always a part of you that's like, well, I hated that movie, but I love that actress and like I shouldn't hold that the movie is bad against her or whatever. Like it's like do I think still Alice is Julianne Moore's best work? Not really, but like it's a great thing to win for because it's her being great in a normal type of movie. She's like transcending it. Mm-hmm. But uh here I don't have that guilt because I genuinely, not only do I think the movie's bad, I think she's kind of like the worst in it. Like I kind of think Joseph Cotton's like blowing her off the screen. And I think the old, older character actors who are in it are like genuinely the best parts of it. And the only characters who almost make sense for a second. Right. I think she like specifically is also the problem with it. So I know (laughs) I'm not just ranking her low because of the movie, because it's like, I'm realizing I've never like, I, I don't like amnesia plots. Like it's so hard to pay everything out because it's such an initial hurdle, uh, how little sense it's going to make when you just insert amnesia into a narrative about something else. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, is like the born identity. One of the only things that doesn't like totally mangle an amnesia plot. Sure. Because this movie has worse letter stuff than the lake house and probably worse amnesia stuff than, uh, Rachel McAdams is the vow. If, if, uh, you want to put it in terms of modern uh, romantic dramas sure uh it's just extra ridiculous it would be uh laughed at now and it just seems like these vanity projects get to exist in some way because of her weird marriage to david o selznick when i think she probably could have gotten a starring role otherwise but probably not as long of a career of these vehicles that don't work and seem to exist to like after the first one to like get an Oscar nomination and lose and waste a bunch of time in campaign and kick out some good performances uh, along the way. Like there's a great noir called detour this year with Ann Savage giving this amazing performance. I'm sure there was better people in general. There must always be better people. Right. And I probably like, honestly, probably just the marriage to David O. Selznick alone, because I mean, a big part of an Oscar campaign is money, but it's also about like who, you know, and um, every single time, like who was it this year who was nominated for what's her name uh, to Leslie. Um, oh yeah. Andrea Riseborough. Andrea Riseborough, who was just nominated and she did like a grassroots campaign and, and it's so unheard of. I think the last time that you really heard about that was um, the best supporting actress for American graffiti. She like took out an ad in like variety for like a thousand dollars and then got like an Oscar nomination. Um, oh, of so course. Did, so did Melissa Leo. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. So Consider. it's like whenever you hear about those kinds of things, then it just sort of reinforces that, you know, uh, an Oscar nomination is it's money. Like it's, it's very much about the campaign. It's about who, you know, it's, and so, um, 
yeah, very likely that probably contributed to her four Oscar nominations in a row because the only time that you ever hear about that kind of stuff is like with Betty Davis, you know, and it's like <laughs> to consider um, Jennifer uh, Jones and Betty Davis in the same category is laughable. Oh, for Christ's sake, Betty Davis was literally in a movie called The Letter and it's like far yeah. superior to this piece of crap. I um this I love that you called it a vanity project. I think that that is such a good way of putting it. Um, her, the amnesia, the 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 plot itself is unforgivable, but also like the fact that this was singled out as a best performance of the year. I think to me is is truly laughable. I don't know um, which performance you were referring to that you said would have um, also fit there, uh, but without even having any knowledge of it, I would have to agree with you. Okay. Because anything is better than this ridiculous fluff. I, um, yeah, not a fan, no good, not even worth watching just for fun. Anyway, I have a very hard, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm a, I'm not a Jennifer Jones stan. Sorry, girl. Sorry, not sorry. I have, yeah. I, have I have nothing else to say. I have nothing great else. Face. To say. <laughs> She's got a great face, but uh, yeah. stunning. Absolutely stunning. And um, back in classic, you know, old Hollywood, that could really get you very, very far. It really could. Um, I'm not saying that she's a bad actor. I'm saying that she's very overrated and these Oscar nominations I feel like are not warranted. She has five. She should probably have like one. I don't, I've never seen the song of Bernadette that just on the three movies that I've seen so far, um, even in uh, love is a many splendored thing. She plays an Asian doctor in China named Dr. Hong. So let that just simmer. <laughs> let that just, you, anyway, I have lots of issues with Jennifer Jones. So Okay. Do you have anything else that you would like to add before we move on? Uh, no. Don't watch Love Letters. It's true. You don't want to. Don't want to. Okay. Hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Um, let's talk about Ingrid Bergman in The Bells of St. Mary. So very quickly, at a big city Catholic school, Father O'Malley and Sister Benedict um, indulge in a friendly rivalry and succeed in extending the school through the gift of a building. I never really quite understood what changed in that businessman's mind to actually give them uh, the people at St. Mary's um, the building. You can explain that later, but I will, I, I'll just say I, I thought that that was um, confusing. So this movie is actually a uh, sequel. This was the first sequel to be nominated um, for an Academy Award for Best Picture. And at the 1945 Academy Awards, Bing Crosby, who's the lead in this movie, and Leo... McCary won Best Actor and Best Director uh, for Going My Way. This is the original movie, Going My Way. Uh, when Ingrid Bergman won Best Actress Award for her role in Gaslight, uh, she told the audience at the award ceremony, ooh, I'm glad I won because tomorrow morning I start shooting the sequel to Going My Way, The Bells of St. Mary's, um, with Bing Crosby and Leo uh, McCary, and I was afraid that if I didn't have an Oscar, they wouldn't speak to me. 
Um, so in this movie, she is um, like the the head nun, the like mother of the house or whatever. Um, she's RuPaul for anybody um, that doesn't get the hierarchy. And, uh, you know, Bing Crosby is not like a regular priest. He's a cool priest, you know. Um, and listen, this is one of those examples for me where Ingrid Bergman is doing everything, but it's still a movie where we're not really talking about a high stakes plot. This, I think this movie was like two hours and five minutes. I don't, I don't understand how it could have been that long. There weren't enough beats. I didn't find the conflict between her and Bing Crosby to be um, really, there wasn't really much conflict at all in my opinion, um, or it wasn't juicy enough. Like, let's say I didn't find it captivating. However, I will say that Ingrid Bergman clearly knows how to act the shit out of a movie. She knows how to make a character interesting. And she has this kind of star quality charisma that you can't, it's either you have it or you don't. And whatever it is, I, I, I don't even know how to articulate this or how to explain it. But Ingrid Bergman has this thing where when she is talking she could be, what is the expression, reading a phone book on a toilet and I could watch her for an hour. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how to explain it, but there's just something about her and she knows how to do it so well. And I just find her so captivating, even if it's the most boring thing in the world. I think this is a terrible movie. I think that there's really no plot here, um, but there's something about her that I can't take my eyes off of. And whatever it is, she nails it. So I'm saying good for her for doing that thing, whatever that superpower is. But anyway, those are my initial thoughts. What did um, Josh, what did you think of this film? And what did you think of Ingrid Bergman's performance? Yeah, I think you're right to zero in on just how good she is in everything always, because I feel like this is not the best movie that we have this week. And spoilers, but it's not the best performance. But I think out of any of these five actresses, Ingrid Bergman's the one who, like, I always find she's good in her worst movies. Like, it's not even even Joan Crawford or Betty Davis or Elizabeth Taylor. I can imagine when the movie is ridiculous, there's nothing you can do. But mm-hmm. Ingrid Bergman, she's almost so dignified. It's that Casablanca thing, which she crazily wasn't nominated for. Right. But like, where the lines just sound right. Like, she's mm-hmm. just so much part of the poetry. And she gives it this dignified uh, thing. And she's so interesting. She's kind of like, she's basically like Maggie Smith in Sister Act here. Um, (laughs) I totally forgot that Maggie Smith was in Sister Act. (laughs) She might be in both of them. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so, so was Peggy Hill. That is so funny. Anyway. Oh my God. Uh, absolutely. So it's Harvey Keitel, weirdly, because um, <laughs> it's about escaping the mob, really. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I've seen Going My Way because it's the Best Picture winner. Um, and uh, that's a weird movie. That's a very weird Best Picture winner. And the other crazy thing about that movie is a guy got nominated in Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. Barry mm. Fitzgerald. <laughs> he lost both. And they're like, okay, we have to change the rules so that this doesn't happen. 
I, it's the one and only time. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that you said that. So in the first film, Barry Fitzgerald was nominated for lead and supporting. He actually won supporting. This was the first and only time that this happened. They had to change the we Academy rules after this, after this occurrence. How insulting would that be if, like, you were campaigning for lead actor and then somebody came in and, you know, was nominated for supporting, fine, but then also got the nomination for lead as well? That would fucking piss me off. I'm like, what fucking bullshit? Like, yeah, like, sorry, we couldn't find five nominees this year, so we're just going to double down on this one supporting role. Like, fuck off. Yeah, imagine if Bing Crosby had lost in lead, like, how pissed he would be. He's like, Barry, you already getting the Oscar in supporting. Do you really have to pull my votes away? A hundred percent. That's so true. You have to really like grab the going my way fans. We only have such a small uh, going my way hive as it is. uh, All the father O'Malley heads. (laughs) And also this movie for the record was the most profitable film in the history of RKO radio pictures. Yeah, this was like their MCU. It was like uh, the, the Father O'Malley uh, <laughs> cinematic universe. There's people on opening May- day in like their priest robes, like throwing confetti when he shows up like in Indian movies. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, the, the conflict, though, between, um, you know, Ingrid Bergman and the priest, it's like what I mean by I didn't really think that they had that much of a conflict and where I wanted the like, you know, like in doubt with like Meryl Streep and Phil- Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. That is the level of conflict that I want between the two. Yeah, this is a, and like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams even would be like tense enough. Like, sure. It's, uh, there's none of that energy. It's like doubt, but like uh, the doubt is like, I doubt that there's anything that I care about happening. I did think the women sort of uh, steal the movie and uh, make it better. Although there is, there is like a very like, I'm a I'm a woman who's fallen on hard times character but uh oh yeah. yeah there's a bit less bing in this one than the original so I kind of uh preferred it cuz he's not really primarily an actor but like uh I just liked it when it was letting Ingrid Bergman emote and eventually there is uh so, uh, an illness and uh some some stuff does happen and this whole plot about a kid but I the excuse to seeing her act was much more relevant to anything I enjoyed here than any of the plot itself uh, versus love letters where the plot could be crazy and uh, fun if someone was having fun with it. But Jennifer Jones is doing such a weird thing <laughs> that Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman can survive in a bad movie in a way that Jennifer Jones cannot. Right. To the point where Ingrid Bergman's acting actually makes this movie, I would say, significantly better than Love Letters. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I also found that um, at one point they were maybe trying to go for like a Michelle Pfeiffer and Dangerous Minds energy where it's like these um, inner city school kids and she's trying to, you know, teach them like the value of education and, and the importance of, I don't know, your relationship with God because the called the bells of saint mary's and bing crosby and he's a priest and they didn't even do that um the only thing that i found interesting about this film was whenever ingrid bergman is teaching that little boy how to box and how to throw a punch how to throw a right hook and then when he gets into another fight the kid like beats the shit out of the other kid and then they kind of become friends which is a horrible message to send to people but it's a different time and then uh you know he kind of looks at ingrid bergman and she almost had like a Gina Davis and like league of her own sort of energy where she's like, 
into sports and she's like, oh, like I love to play uh, baseball. And so because that, of that, and I'm a sports oriented kind of person, I'll teach this kid how to box. Let me just follow this guide. For me, that was really the most interesting part of this movie. I thought that was very um, heartwarming. And uh, the relationship with the kid was very brief, but like memorable. And to be honest with you, that was kind of the only thing that I found sort of interesting about this film. Well, I feel like you really hit the nail on the head mentioning something like Dangerous Minds because I feel like this doesn't need to be like a sequel. I feel like they could have just made a cool Ingrid Bergman non-movie or an Ingrid Bergman bonding with these kids movie uh, because Bing just kind of seems to still be hanging around. Barry Fitzgerald, the other priest, is not in this sequel and I don't think any of the other characters from Going My Way are. Right. Uh, it's just him singing at kids in another situation, but it seems like, I don't know, I kind of got a vibe like that the the people writing this script, they like are interested in the Ingrid Bergman character. They're trying to build out a character, but they're stuck with all of this franchise baggage, which is such a term in movies today that I did not think would apply in the 40s, but <laughs> this might be a weird uh, example of it, uh, strangely enough. And I also think the other thing is like, it's so funny when a man and a woman who are celebrities star in a movie, even like during the code era, because they're always going to have like romantic lighting in their one-on-one conversations, even if they're playing a priest and a nun who right. like will not even flirt, they will get like the mood lighting and like her slow smile at seeing like Bing come through the door, like close up or whatever. Yeah. Um, the production they just can't not shoot movies that way. No, a hundred percent. And I also was wondering if that was going to be a plot point. Um, because, okay, so here's like the last little fact, uh, trivia fact that I found that was interesting. So the production was overseen by a Catholic priest who served as an advisor during the shooting. And while the final farewell sequence was being filmed, Bing Crosby and Ingrid Berman decided to play a prank on him. They asked director Leo uh, McCary to allow one more take. And as Father O'Malley and Sister Benedict said their last goodbyes, they embraced in a passionate kiss while the off-screen priest advisor jumped up roaring in protest. Oh, 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 they're just a couple of stinkers. Oh, yeah, real Clooney prank. Uh. <laughs> um, also, why was she not allowed to be aware of the fact that she had tuberculosis and she was being sent away? Yeah, that was really weird because the doctor just tells all of the information, not even to like someone she has worked with a long time, but to Bing Crosby because he's like, you're a man. How about I let you know the things that I'm deliberately uh, keeping from her? Yeah, I thought that I love that you said he was just hanging around because it's so true. He I don't know if he has top billing, but obviously it's like one of the top. And so when I you, you yeah, like you just kind of forget he's in this movie and you're like, isn't this movie about him? I don't know. Yeah. This, this movie to me was was just like I really it just kind of seemed like we were all just hanging out at St. Mary's for two hours, and then the movie ended. There just really wasn't a lot going on. They were weirdly separate. Like, a lot of the scenes are Bing Crosby talking to other people or her talking to other people, and it's like they only overlapped for, like, a week of a shoot, and they're like, all right, let's get some 20-second scenes of you, too. Yeah, I mean, this movie, just the description, it says friendly rivalry. It's like, well, where was that? There was a little bit of that, but I wish there was more of that. Yeah, absolutely. It should it should very much be like uh, dysfunction uh, running uh, with jokes and subplots, because that's the one thing that it's actually a very faithful sequel. The first one has probably even more weird subplots. Oh, okay. Well, 
Uh, do you have anything else that you would like to add before we move on? Um, I saw uh, Clarence the Angel from It's a Wonderful Life plays the businessman in this. Oh, and right. It's a Wonderful Life was on the movie marquee in this. Oh. Um, so that, I think, is a little shout out because I think the director Frank Capra is a friend of uh, Leo McCary. Well, at one point... I was confused by the tone of the film because you remember whenever she closes the door and then he gets hit by a car? Yeah, that was weird. And then I was like, oh my God, like he died. And then they open the door and they're like, gotcha. And I'm like, is this a comedy? Like, what's the tone here? Like, I couldn't, anyway, there was just a lot of things that I just, there were a lot of missed opportunities in this film. And I just was very confused by a lot of them. Well, that's kind of like the one-on-one scenes and especially that one like fallen woman character with a with an ex and a son. I, I feel like there's a new tone for each like two-person scene and it totally depends. And meanwhile, the businessman, as far as I can tell, the answer is he's just like uh, a befuddled, like eccentric old guy who slowly like gets won over by them mm-hmm. and their fun personalities. But the scenes of him actually observing them don't seem to be in the movie, even though that's Henry Travers from It's a Wonderful Life and he's a great actor that they should probably be using more so it, hmm. it just kind of felt lost in the edit weirdly for a 40s movie which is not again they're shooting on film it's not a thing i'm used to saying right yeah totally hmm okay hmm. well anyway um okay so let's move on let's talk about uh greer garson in the valley of decision this movie was watchable <laughs> this movie um i actually enjoyed i This is another soap opera plot, but hey, I'm not mad at that. And at least this movie was watchable. I didn't need to take a million breaks. Um, But very quickly, an Irish maid falls for the son of her wealthy boss, um, though they're disapproving fathers and a bitter strike at the steel mill complicate matters. So basically it's like a rags to riches, Romeo and Juliet, forbidden love. You come from two different worlds story. Fine. I'm not mad at that. Let's get into it. So, um, the only thing that I thought was kind of interesting is just mostly because of the time, uh, despite her youthful appearance, Greer Garson was 12 years older than Gregory Peck, um, her leading man, which of course for the time that would be like, Oh my God, so shocking because they would cast like women who are like two years older than the leading actor as like their moms often. So the fact that she was 12 years older, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so Greer Garson in this movie uh, I I either am really into a Greer Garson vehicle or I'm really not. And this one I'm really into. Um, the Irish accent was like a little hi to ta 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 which fine. Um, but as a person that dates an Irish person, Irish people don't... It, it was more of like a stereotypical like theater Irish accent, but whatever. Um, for the time, you know, I, I appreciate it. Um and you know that she's Irish because she's wearing all plaid with a beret and a pom-pom on top of it. So, you know, we're dealing with a lot of stereotypes. We're talking about leprechauns at one point. We're talking, we're hitting on a lot of stereotypical things in this movie. But again, it is a product of its time. Um, Greer Garson, the only criticism that I have of her in this film is I cannot stand the martyr character where it's like oh even though the entire rich family wants me to marry the um uh uh, carrie uh, gregory peck sorry even though the rich family wants me to marry gregory peck and we're from two different worlds i still can't because i don't want to ruin his image no 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 i hate that fucking martyr plot uh that is a trope during this time for for 
for women um, in roles, it gets really repetitive and like annoying after a while. And it just prolongs the story. Um, like it makes it just longer than it needs to be. Um, but I enjoyed that. Like <laughs> her father kills like um, Gregory Peck's father. And uh, anyway, I really enjoyed this film. I wish that they spent more time between Greer Garson and Gregory Peck developing their relationship because it just kind of felt like, okay, we're making out now and now we're in love. I wish that they um, spent more time with that to explain it a little bit better um, and to really show their relationship blossom rather than just the conflict of their relationship because they're from two different worlds but the thing that didn't really work was that like both families except for her father approved of it so that didn't that was like counterintuitive to the plot anyway i have my criticisms but as a movie i enjoyed it and i enjoyed greer garson in this role um anyway i liked it so what did um josh what did you think of the movie and what did you think of greer garson yeah i liked this movie i think she has a record here. Like she's got five nominations in a row. And I think that's still like the record for an actress. All I I could see was that Betty Davis uh, tied it, but I believe they are the only two with uh, five noms in a row. And I think this is the end of her streak. Cause I don't even, yeah. Um, Meryl Meryl Streep doesn't even have that actually. She, I think she has four. Greer Carson's is uh, 41, 42, 43, 44 and 45. And I, you just said, I think Jennifer Jones also had four in a row at one point. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's interesting. I, I get it because I think she's often an arresting presence. And she's another person sort of like Ingrid Bergman, where you just kind of want to like uh, sit back and like let the skill wash over you, even if the plot is kind of whatever. Mrs. Miniver might be like the ultimate example of that, <laughs> right, where yes. it's her and Teresa Wright both getting these like huge, huge showcases of just like, uh, 20 types of worries in the span of like an hour. Right. But uh, Valley of Decision was uh, pretty fun. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I, I thought you really hit the nail on the head with Bells of St. Mary's saying like, why is this like two hours and five minutes? There's nothing of consequence. And it's like the nun versus priest antics could actually be fun if that movie was like a tight 80 minutes. Right. And this is a movie, Valley of Decision, that is two hours, but it's actually interesting enough because the supporting characters are real. There's these two families, but there are probably some missed opportunities. For one thing, if you're doing a class story, I think you want there to be more like rich people disapproving of the match or whatever. Like I think the the poor father is the one who seems to have the biggest problem with it, but by and large, nobody is all that skeptical of her. They just have questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the flirting is quite good. Like uh, Gregory Peck is very like dashing in this movie Mm -hmm. in a way uh, that I'm almost, I'm I'm used to him being like a little bit cheesier actually. Uh, And he (laughs) he was kind of debonair here compared to even like uh, something like Roman holiday where he's, he's very appealing, but like he's leaning into the jokes. This was like very like sincere and not in a performative, like to kill a mockingbird kind of way. Right. So I enjoyed them together and I thought Greer Garson, they did a fun thing filming it where your eye is sort of on her when she's like serving in the background. But Mm. I would also have to agree that the martyr thing is annoying. And I also find not just women, but there is something about like, there's some sort of like a weird, uh, 
uh, Downton Abbey vibe I get about martyrs who are like servants. And it's like, oh, she's so noble for waiting <laughs> right. for what she really wants. Yes. Because it's more important to like serve these people. And it's almost like this is done by like CEOs to like maintain order and like everyone <laughs> to know their place. Yeah. It's super annoying. Like studio heads. But in these movies, cause I, my podcast now it's like, I I'm only doing the classic era. And that is a common theme that I'm noticing. It was like, that was the role um, either for classism, but specifically for women. It was like the, during this time, it was like, you have to sacrifice everything for this man because God forbid you make him look bad in any way, or you disgrace him in any way. And there's this, this, this savior martyr. I, I find it, it's such a trope, um, in films like during this time. And it's just, such an eye roll and i just found it super super annoying you know the good the the that's the thing that i didn't like about it but the thing that i did that i very much did enjoy about greer garson's performance is like you know you were saying like with sort of the conflicts of the supporting characters and the 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 different classes and the families and stuff like that you do see a lot of outer and inner struggles going on with her character because she wants to kind of be loyal to both families but in different ways and i think that that challenges the character and the actor um to really show that in a way that you would be on her side in both instances. And I think that she does that uh, very effectively. Um, I thought that whenever her dad killed the rich dad, it was kind of funny because it was just supposed to be like a peaceful protest and then it just escalated so quickly. Um, And then she kind of just- Now it's Parasite. Yeah, she's, she's, oh, that's so funny. That's so true. And then she literally is like, okay, so we'll just like get a divorce. Um, But like, I'll just keep working for the family. My bad. Sorry, my father killed your dad. Sorry, 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 sorry. And I, I thought to me that was kind of just comedic. Um, But I, I, um, like I said, with Greer Garson films, it's either a hit or a miss for me. There's really no in between. But for me, this one, this one was definitely uh, a hit. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, you get at something there that it almost feels like it could have been a little more uh, uh, sort of leave her to heaven-ish, a little more actorly and melodramatic because the things that are happening eventually become so ridiculous. And unlike a lot of these movies that you watch from the 40s, it's really got a world of uh, supporting ensembles. I didn't love all the men's like schemes and things. I would have preferred more time in the romance. But I do think... The old coot battle is, of course, great. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm used to the rich guy uh, playing poor guys and the poor guy playing rich guys. So I think this was a bit of a fun, like, against type thing for them. Because one of them is, uh, the poor one is Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, Lionel right. Barrymore. Oh, but, a lot of uh, It's I a Wonderful women, Life references. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I thought the women really stole this one. Gladys Cooper is in this and Love Letters. And she's always these like mom types. I think now Voyager is probably one of her most famous roles. Right. But uh, she was fun in both of these. And yeah, I think it's also uh, a movie where Greer Garson is like very clearly the standout thing about it. So that bodes well because it's not a disaster movie. She keeps it engaging. And pretty much anyone would agree that she is like the thing to write home about within it. 
so in a way, it's one of those deceptively difficult things where you could, I always feel like there's an argument to be made that whoever is just like doing the exact task in a mediocre movie, that's like the most transcendent type of acting there is. Mm. But I always end up ultimately wanting to vote for like a movie I also think is great. Well, another thing that I also thought was very interesting about this movie is whenever Gregory Peck remarries, who does he remarry but Jessica fucking Tandy? I literally had to have like a double take. I was like, why does she look so familiar that but I'm like who are you and then I looked it up and I'm like oh my god it's fucking Miss Daisy it's Jessica fucking Tandy I've never seen her without the wrinkles hey girl what's going on I didn't and when she came into the fucking movie and she's like she hates Greer Garson because Greer Garson's the ex-wife and she has to tell Paul that the mother is dead and she comes in and she's so pissed that she has to deliver the news that his mother is um, dead and she just goes in the in the most hilarious way like total deadpan she's just like Paul your mother's dead do we have craft dinner I'm kind <laughs> of in that mood like it was just like nothing like it was way too and I just was like oh my god who is this bitch it was Jessica fucking Tandy I'm like that's incredible that's a that's a great little because uh, I've, I've only ever seen her in Driving Miss Daisy so it's kind of crazy to see her so youthful and also just kind of delivering this hilarious your mother's dead bye and just walks away it was like what the fuck like just happened (laughs) um what was i gonna say okay so yeah so we have that about jessica tandy Hmm. i also thought okay Took me a second to realize that this movie was in the 1800s and that is not what people looked like in the 1940s (laughs) Okay. I was like, wow, people in the 40s still wear corsets. I'm like, oh no, this is a period piece. Okay, Kyle, you're stupid. Um Yeah, then... it's it's so hard to tell. Everything like pre-televisions, basically. Uh <laughs> there's a good stretch of like six or seven or eight decades that are easily mistaken for each other, uh, until you get the specificities of the closer, but something like that. And it's always harder in black and white too. Um Okay. Well, actually, just just for time's sake, I do think that we should just move on um, to Joan Crawford. But do you have anything that you want to close on for Greer Garson before we before we move on? Uh, no, it was a good movie, good decisions, uh, good valley. Uh, they reminded me of Kelly McDonald and Clive Owen in Gosford Park, which is a movie I have seen many, many times. Ooh. Uh, so I, I appreciated that aspect of the, the, the flirting uh, servant. I love... Uh... I absolutely love Clive Owen. Handsome Devil Hot List number one. Okay, uh, let's talk about Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce. So a hardworking mother inches towards disaster as she divorces her husband and starts a successful restaurant business to support her spoiled daughter. First of all, earlier, um, Josh, thank you so much for bringing up um, the MCU when we were talking about uh, the Bells of St. Mary's um, being the uh, most successful, profitable film of the uh, RKO Radio Pictures. Because when you mentioned the MCU, it reminded me, I was like, holy fucking shit. Um, Vita, the daughter of Mildred Pierce, is like the Thanos of the story. (laughs) She is so evil and so wicked i could honestly argue that she is like one of the greatest movie villains of all time 
Evan Rachel Wood played her in the remake, the HBO miniseries um, with Kate Winslet. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's it's great. And um, it's a lot more realistic and serious. But oh my God, this movie, first of all, any gay listening, they've obviously seen this film, is such a yes. It I've seen this movie many times before. It's like film noir. It's also like maybe a little campy. It's compelling. It's rags to riches. It's that thing with Michelle Yeoh in Everything Everywhere All at Once where the actor is using all of their skills at once. This is Joan Crawford using all of her star power, all of her skills, all of the way that you know she was perceived to be at the time at once. And she fucking nails it and knocks it out of the park. I think uh, also like uh, Julia Roberts and Aaron Brock for example, where it's just like the the peak of all of your star power abilities just happening at the same time. And it just makes for such a great movie. My only criticism of this film is the fact that they, I understand it was for the purpose of telling the story when they bring her into the precinct, but the whole time they knew it was Vita. So it was just this big elaborate production. I'm like, what fucking cop would waste their fucking time other than that? Um, I, everything in this, she is serving face, those ridiculous shoulder pads. It is just so iconic that the hair where it's like big two giant curls on her head. It's just, this movie is everything for me. I've, I've seen this movie like I think three or four times now. I will probably watch it three or four times, um, you know, again. And, um, Oh, also the murder that happens in the movie that actually was never in the original book. They just added that for dramatic effect for the film. And uh, where did we see this? After seeing the film, James M. Kane sent Joan Crawford a signed first edition of the original novel. The inscription read, To John Crawford, who brought Mildred Pierce to life just as I had always hoped that she would be and who has my long time, my lifelong gratitude. So anyway... Um, it's this is all a yes for me. Um, Josh, what did you think of the film and what did you think of Joan Crawford? Uh, I loved Mildred Pierce. I've seen it before. I loved it then. I loved it more the second time for sure. It's it's just really fantastic in terms of you put it really well in terms of uh, letting her do everything. And it really just is what you think of as this like infinite floor for an actress kind of role. And it's not that uh, Mildred is crazy or anything. She's not like necessarily dangerous, like leave her to heaven vibes or anything. It's just, she gets a lot to react to here. And it's a crazy story they came up with. That's basically why it is good. And I think I'm a huge fan of the miniseries too. And I just think the Winslet and the Joan Crawford performances are both perfect in a way where I don't even want to have a preference. They're just like both... Mm -hmm the exact thing that would capture audiences in that era and be like, oh, wow, I am swept up in this story. And when uh, hysterics were just a bigger thing in the 40s, what Crawford's delivering, uh, even though I think the scripts are less tight than the, the version that Todd Haynes made as the miniseries, uh, the performance is every bit equal. And I would probably lean towards it being something that I think is even more amazing to me than the Winslet performance. Mm-hmm. It is wild. It is uh, perfection in a lot of the ways that Gene Kearney's is and also completely different ways. It is such a fascinating thing, even though 
Vita should be like stealing the movie. And you also have one of the great, fun, uh, best friend characters who they wisely nominated for an Oscar. But uh, Eve Arden, I think, just like inventing being Judy Greer essentially in this movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I feel like what you're getting at is like, it's basically the epitome of like, the kind of role that someone is doing on like snatch game. Right. It's just like <laughs> the kind of role where it's like, this is a fantastic type of older movie that everyone could see. Cause there are weird lines delivered in a crazy way that you could know about now and say to your friends. When you mentioned um, Eve Arden, who played uh, Ida Corwin, who was nominated for best supporting actress, she almost had that sort of like Joan Cusack in working girl vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Sandra O oh and like under the Tuscan sun, just like the, like the person you bounce off of. Yeah, exactly. And I was very glad to see her nominated in that role. I seriously though, when I, when I say that, like, um, like Vita is Thanos, like, Oh my God, you hate her in this movie. Like when she makes like the housemaid wear the uniform, you're like, Oh, you little fucking shit. The real acting performance is the restraint from killing Vita. You know what I mean? Like, and whenever she like whacks, like slaps um, Mildred, like across the face and stuff like that, Joan Crawford actually instructed Anne Blythe who plays Vita to actually slap her on the staircase. So that slap was real. Um, And it's so funny because, uh, uh, Leave Her to Heaven, Mildred Pierce, and The Valley of Decision are definitely the most watchable films of the year. They're very, very different, but um, everything about this movie I, I love. Like, I love the cinematography. The only thing, okay, I will say this. The only thing that I found very confusing is the way that she tried to frame Wally for the murder because she had been so sick and tired of the things that he was doing behind her back. Uh, because he was upset that she simply would not give in to his advances. And I'm like, girl, he helped you from the very beginning. You at least owe him a sad hand job. Let's get real. I once blew a guy because he paid for parking. Bitch, you owe him. Like, he has done a lot of things for you. I'm sorry, but I thought that Wally is a catch. I thought he was very, very sexy and handsome, and I didn't understand why she kept pushing him away. Maybe that's just because I was very into him. I don't know. But that was the only thing that I found confusing because I just didn't really think that he was really that awful to her uh maybe the standards back in the day were quite different but i found him charming and i liked him and i also understood why he was being spiteful because his feelings were hurt so i think murdering or um framing him for murder is really just like (laughs) fucking meanest thing you can do when this person literally helped you basically build your entire empire so that was a little that was the only thing of the movie that i didn't enjoy because i actually i'm sympathetic to wally's uh plight yeah, I mean, he's better than Monty. And I'm also pretty happy just ascribing like plot things that don't work in it to me as like, well, the book screwed it up, but this is a perfect adaptation. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think. I don't, the thing about this performance too is it's not like a, it's this big performance, it's more just she is Mildred Pierce. Just like Julia Roberts is Aaron Brockovich. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you're not, it's not like this Sophie's Choice kind of performance where it's like, wow, like what range, what what big moments, what subtle moments, what small moments. It's not about that. It's about Mildred Pierce's journey and the way that Joan Crawford just embodies it so 
perfectly. I mean, you have everything going on here. You have the 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 murder. You know, the who do, like um, you know, how, are they going to get away with it? Um, you have the the story with Vita. You also have the compelling story of her like opening a restaurant. Um, the rags to riches kind of thing that we see like a lot. Um, I did also think it was really funny how at the end of the movie when they're like, no, we knew it was Vita all along. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. And then she gets up and she walks off into this beautiful horizon, like this beautiful, like almost fairy tale like backdrop. And I'm like, what? So Vita's just going to the slammer and 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 that's it. Like I, I thought that was kind of just like, well, fuck Vita, because obviously everybody hates her. But just the way that the entire movie she was so defensive of Vita and so caring of Vita and she's, she's her only living daughter at the end, the way that she was kind of like, okay, cool. And she just walked off into the sunset. I just thought that was like from a as a comedian, I thought that was a very comedic ending to uh the movie. But Anyway, this movie for me just has everything, and I, uh, I just don't think anybody could have done it better than than Joan Crawford. I fully understand why she won this Oscar. Yeah, it benefits from having I think Michael Curtiz, the director of Casablanca here, and the director of like Adventures of Robin Hood and lots of different like types of fun, successful movies because it's just a great movie. It looks incredible. It's lit incredible, mm-hmm. and and she gets to do all these things, and obviously. The, the first three I watched were the ones I hadn't seen before just to make sure that I had time for them. So the fact that I ended up double featuring this with Lever to Heaven, it's like a movie about a woman who is the type of person who like the second a child is annoying, she will kill it. And then a movie about a woman who like a child could be annoying her entire life and she still won't kill it. But like, it, what does that do to you? Right. A type of a person who is tolerant versus like completely instantly intolerant and, uh, Jean Tierney shutting down like every single threat to her wanting to live uh, like the way she wants to. Mildred Pierce is suffering and dealing with and compromising constantly. constantly. She doesn't have a, a grand, her grand act is not caring eventually because she has spent so long caring. She doesn't have a big choice other than she's like, yep, I think she probably did kill them. So yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild. Um, After hearing exaggerated rumors about her behavior at MGM, Michael Curtis was unsure about casting Joan Crawford in the title role. However, she so badly wanted the role that she offered to do a screen test, something an established star was never expected to do. Curtis directed the screen test and after watching it was astonished and agreed that Crawford was perfect for the part. After seeing the film, James M. Kane sent Joan Crawford a sign for... Oh, no, I already said that. Sorry. Um, Anne Blythe remembered Joan Crawford. Anne Blythe was the actress that plays Vita. Um, remembered Joan Crawford as the kindest, most helpful human being I've ever worked with. We remained friends for many years after the film. I never knew that other Joan Crawford that people wrote about, a.k.a. Christina, Mommy Dearest, um, which, listen... Uh, uh, a very nice person can also be an abusive monster um, at home. But anyway, that's a different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, also just those ridiculous shoulder pads. They were just a rectangle. We're also serving like it was everything is yes. Everything is yes. (laughs) in This film for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because I think one thing that came up a little bit in all of these conversations is your show is nominally about women and female characters, but what you end up recapping in plots is essentially 
the worldview that male executives and screenwriters wanted to send out there on like how to behave and right. is is so patriarchal and gendered because once your podcast gets to the point where you've covered like the 90s 80s and, and later than that it's it's all of this backwards stuff where the odd left winger or feminist or actress is trying to sneak in their politics into some really fucked up worldview but mildred pierce is actually a female character who everyone making the film thinks her pain is important in a mm -hmm. way that Love Letters and some of these other movies this week don't really have and feel a little more complacent and mm -hmm. backwards and know your place. Uh, but this is, it, it just feels radical and it is letting you, it's a feminist film. I, I, I genuinely believe it is. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, going back even, to be honest with you, even just, pre 2000 there's a lot of yikes <laughs> like like i literally just said about jennifer jones in loves a many splendor thing she's in full yellow face for this movie like it's like it's it's just fucked like you're just like oh my god like you don't even have to go that far back but yeah extremely patriarchal and the roles that women had to take and um the and also just the roles that women had in society you're like yeah i'm that fucking sucks because um which just fucking sucks <laughs> just fucking sucks <laughs> Um, and their first fix in like the 60s and 70s is like, okay, now there's just not really lead roles for women. Now you're getting nominated in Best Actress for like yeah. helping a man. percent <laughs> In the 40s and 30s. Like, Absolutely. And then it gets worse for a bit. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Very, so true. So much category fraud around there. It, it's crazy that Joan Crawford only won one Oscar, though. She's so iconic to me. And I'm like, you're going to tell me like... Uh, Hilary Swank and uh, Renee Zellweger are more like enshrined in film history <laughs> with the two wins. Is Christoph Waltz a more important figure than uh, Joan Crawford? True. Yeah. It's I funny. Mean, the, numbers, the numbers never tell the whole story. Never. No, 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 no. I mean. No, no noms for John Goodman and, and so on. <laughs> well, I mean, Meryl Streep has three of them, but she only has two lead. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's yeah. not a numbers game, you know? It's just Francis. Francis is the person with the of our time with three actress uh, trophies. Oh God, I'm. She's listen, I love uh, Francis McDormand, and I I love all the films that she's won Oscars for. However, I think that she should have a total of two Oscars. I don't think that she should have three. I find her win for Nomadland. She could do that role in her sleep. I find that Frances McDormand always just plays a version of Frances McDormand. And I've said this on the podcast before, but it's like the grosser, but like the grosser and grittier she gets, the more that they want to like catapult Oscars for her. And the example that I use in Nomadland, she like shits in a bucket and they're like, mm, so brave. Did you hear Frances McDormand is shitting in a bucket in her next film? Get the Oscar ready. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I don't think she should have three, but anyway, that's that's another that's another podcast. And th th this being one uh, Jones one uh, win too, uh, I should talk about. Uh, we both love the show Viewed. Yeah, we did that I, episode. I love that. Anne Bancroft, nineteen sixty. Oh yes, that's right. That's right. The Virginia Woolf one. But yeah, this is like it's funny because like that in history is Joan Crawford's year, but this is actually Joan Crawford's year. Yeah. Well, no, because yeah, no. So, so Anne Bancroft was for the Miracle Worker, but Joan Crawford wasn't nominated. But honestly, she probably should have been because there were some, oh God, nominees that year that were so bad. Specifically, the one that I would have gotten rid of in that year 
would have been um, Geraldine Page for Sweet Bird of Youth. Oh God, that was painful. Anyway, okay, we are we are getting sidetracked here. I think the time has come for us to pick who we think that the Oscars should have gone to. So uh, Josh Murray, you are my guest of honor. So please reveal who you think that the Oscars should have gone to first. All right, I think that the Oscars should have gone to... Joan Crawford, I will say. I was, uh, again, I, I knew that I loved the two movies I had to rewatch. Uh, before rewatching them, I was leading uh, Joan Crawford, maybe. Uh, then I watched Jean Tierney, and then I started leaning that way. But then when I saw Joan Crawford the last time, uh, I've heard, I, I knew I needed like a tiebreaker because I knew that these are two of my favorite performances that have ever been up for Best Actress. And I have, for whatever reason, heard like three different interviews in the last couple of weeks that are like, a great actor, like, watch their hands. Like, what Ray Fiennes does in Grand Budapest Hotel with his hands in every scene is so funny. So I'm just like, I'm going to pay attention to their hands. And <laughs> Mildred Pierce is such a clenched character that there's so many little things that right. uh, sort of sealed the deal when I needed a tiebreaker. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're definitely undervaluing hand stuff. So I'm going <laughs> to overvalue it for a second here just to counterbalance the years that's been neglected. But so uh, <laughs> there's just something about Mildred Pierce that feels like you could almost call it like the quintessential best actress winner. Like it, it feels like a great role, like all about Eve or like Sunset Boulevard, but those roles didn't even win Oscars. Like right. mm-hmm. it, it just feels like in terms of a role that's actually awarded, I would have this very high up in the best winners ever who out of the actual winners and not just nominees. Mm. No, like absolutely. It's a very small handful, and it really is one of those Aaron Brockovich or like Clarice Starling type things where it's like, no, every scene is the Oscar scene. It's not about building up to a moment. It's a character study where the sum of all the scenes makes you leave the theater and you're like, well, now I'm a person who knows what Mildred Pierce would be thinking in any situation because I just understand her because of the way I watched Joan Crawford like listen to An Unfair World, basically. When you're talking about hand acting, I've always said that Jessica Lange should win an Oscar for the way that she acts with a cigarette in between her fingers. Mm. There's something about it that's very seductive and very, it always punctuates whatever it is that she needs to say. And it's a weird skill that she has. And she has played Joan Crawford. And she has played Joan Crawford. Um, Okay. So um, I think that the Oscars should have gone to Joan Crawford for Mildred Pierce. Uh, I don't like basically everything that you just said and everything that I've already sort of um, touched on here, but yeah, it's really just um, a movie star and actress really capitalizing on um, their persona their public persona, but also all of their skill sets and just applying everything all at once. This movie has a little bit of everything for everyone. It is the most entertaining and watchable film of these five. I would definitely watch this film again. I would say that um, I don't even really think there was really much competition for her this year, except for maybe Jean Tierney, maybe, but I just think that um, Joan Crawford and and just Mildred Pierce as a film there was just so much more to it 
um, that anyway, it, it ended up, uh, just working a lot more for me than any of these, um, other films. And it's, uh, Joan Crawford just really knocks it out of the park. And I feel like this is like peak Joan Crawford, you know, whatever happened to baby Jane, it's such a subdued performance where she has to balance out the lunatic of Betty Davis's performance as, um, Jane. So, you know, it's nice to kind of see her sort of flex all of her, her muscles here and, uh, um, also just give her the Oscar for those shoulder pads alone. They are just, it's just a, a rectangle. <laughs> like they are absolutely insane, but iconic. And, um, uh, for all those reasons, I give the Oscar to Joan Crawford. Okay. Well that concludes another episode of best actress. Um, Josh, thank you so much for being a guest. Where can people find you on social media? I am Mosh Jerry on absolutely everything. So find me in that way. Beautiful. Okay, well, we'll have to have you back as a guest next time. Thanks for stopping by. Bye. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.